1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke.
0: Hello, Garrett. When we last left you, we talked about the happiness letter, part one. So we'll get into happiness letter, part two here, but uh, we wanted to start off with the Phoebe Draper mailbag. Uh, This first email comes to us from Graham. Hello, I enjoyed your most recent episode. Uh, I have no idea what episode that was. I'm yeah, sure they're yeah, all great, yeah, Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: He, he, <laughs> I enjoyed all of the episodes. Let's just edit it for Graham.
0: Yeah, that's right. I enjoyed happiness letter one. I'm sure that's what you meant, even though we're recording this before we've dropped happiness letter one. In it, you mentioned a past episode discussing Joseph Smith's alleged statement that people would kill themselves to get into the telestial kingdom. I'm paraphrasing, of course. (laughs) Yes, I don't believe that Joseph said it exactly like that. In which episode would I find that discussion? Thank you. Well, you could just go
1: to our readily indexed. uh, So searchable. Yeah, I mean, we have painstakingly. (laughs) I mean- Really, the question is, how much time have we not spent indexing the episodes?
0: Uh, yes. So um, that that is uh, – we actually did go through and we did find it. It's uh, season two, episode 27, Is This Safe for Sunday School, where uh, Garrett goes through uh, that – Multiple Cl-
1: things that are not safe for Sunday school. <laughs>
0: yes, and that's one of those things. And we we uh, we talk about it. And by we talk about it, I was in the room where Garrett talked about it.
1: Richard was in the room where it yeah,
0: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you very much, Graham, for that kind email. We have an email here from. Uh, this comes to us from from Ruth. Women and plural marriage question.
1: Oh boy. Perfect. Why are you reading this question? Well, it's
0: going it it feels- to perfectly dovetail into Happiness Letter uh part 2 and john C Bennett. I've listened to a few of your fun and informative podcasts. Yeah, that's very nice that, of her. That is very nice. Yeah. Um thank you Ruth. I have an ancestor that was an early convert to the church. She received her endowment in the Nauvoo temple in 1846 and made the trek to Utah. Various husbands passed away and she'd remarry. She is sealed to three men. Another one of my ancestors was the second wife in a plural marriage. So I'm familiar with the idea when it comes to a man being sealed to multiple women. I've heard in the case of women being sealed to multiple men, they'll be able to choose which one they want to be sealed to. But is this doctrine or just speculation? Thanks,
1: thank you, Ruth. I feel like Richard is continually trying to force me to talk about plural marriage against my will. <laughs> I, he, I tell him, "No, we're saving that, so we can do it all in one shot." Here I am talking about the happiness letter, and also <laughs> let's answer an email. Um, this is a, I mean, look, this is a very natural question, and it's a really good question. I wish I had the ability to answer it but I don't. Um, There are some questions that remain questions because they haven't been revealed. And so I, I understand the concern because, look, when we do temple work, legitimately anyone who's been married to more than one person, man or woman, when you're, you know, knee deep in your, you know, ancestry from the 1600s, right? And and because life expectancy is not exactly ideal really anywhere in the world in the 1600s, there's a great chance that you have ancestors that have more than one wife or more than one husband um and and they're not, you know, practicing polygamous in 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 Utah. And so when we find those people in our ancestry, we seal Everyone to each other, everyone to everyone. So uh, if in, in this case, like you said, you know, uh, a woman who's had three husbands, when we find her records, at, we seal her to all three of those husbands. Now, the question then arises, you're a very good question. Well, so who's she going to be married to in the next life? Because she's married to three different men, so who's she going to be with? First of all, let's talk about what the church has actually said about this. And one of the more recent statements the church has made is in the Gospel Topics essays, um, The Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo, where this, this essay is designed to help people understand how plural marriage was practiced and also the things that we don't know about it. And in the concluding paragraph of that uh, essay, it says members are permitted to perform ordinances on behalf of deceased men and women who married more than once on earth, sealing them to all of the spouses to whom they were legally married. Okay, so there's the statement. That's what we already know that happens the precise nature of these relationships in the next life is not known. And many family relationships will be sorted out in the life to come. Latter-day Saints are encouraged to trust in our wise Heavenly Father who loves his children and does all things for their growth and salvation. So, that That's kind of a long way of saying, we don't know. We don't know the precise nature of these relationships in the next life. And in fact, anyone who tells you that they do just has an opinion about it, but they don't actually know. I, I, I'm well aware that you can find all kinds of people who have opinions about it. The church is saying the nature of those ceilings the precise nature of them is not known. Now, at the same time, I think far too many Latter-day Saints, as we've talked about before, they actually fall on the other side of the ledger. Um, uh, well, in answer to your question, when you say, is it just rumor that she'll get to choose? Well, it's, certainly it's what people, some people speculate. Mm-hmm. But if in fact the doctrine was that a woman who's sealed to three different men will choose which one she's going to be with in the next life, then the sentence I just read would have been a woman who's sealed to multiple men will get to choose which one she's with in the next life. And that wasn't the sentence. So therefore, I'm not saying it's a a terrible speculation, but it's important to recognize it's a speculation. And, And when it surrounds plural marriage, people lose their faith and lose their testimonies Over things that they don't even know to be the case. They they lose their testimonies over what they perceive the nature of plural marriages to be in the next life, even when we don't even know what they are. But if it's like this, then I won't have a testimony. Well, we don't even know if it's like that. So it is one of those difficult topics where you actually have to sit back and say, I'm not a Protestant, okay? The very fact that I believe in marriage in the next life means I am not some run-of-the-mill Protestant Christian who believes God created me out of nothing just so I could come to this earth and glory him by suffering and then probably go to hell, almost certainly go to hell, but if I'm lucky, not go to hell. But don't worry, there's no marriages in the next life regardless the very only reason we're even asking the question is because Latter-day Saints believe that their relationship to God and therefore their relationship to each other is incredibly different than what other Christians believe. We believe that we are eternal beings that will that that for all intents and purposes always existed and will always exist going forward. That is not what a Christian believes. We believe that marriages can exist in the next life. No Christian believes that. None, right? They don't believe that marriages of any kind exist. So always I want to stress when we talk about ceilings, which is incredibly sensitive, especially because it's impossible for us not to personify the question with our own life. When we talk about marriage, the first thing we do is we go to our own experience in marriage or, you know, having experienced our parents' bad marriage or our grandparents' bad marriage or our friends' marriage or something. We we go to experience and, and that can color how we think about marriage. And yet, it, it's important to remember, always remember, the only reason someone has a question about who is married to who in the next life is because they have accepted that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Because the moment, the instant, the second, that we allow our questions about who's sealed to who to undermine our testimony, we don't even need to worry about it anymore. The question evaporates. Because if Joseph Smith's not a prophet— then there is no marriage in the next life. And so the the answer to the question, if Joseph Smith's not a prophet, which of the three men uh, is my grandmother sealed to? The answer is nobody. There's no marriage in the next life. It doesn't exist in the next life, so you don't have to worry about it. And so I, I really think we should really lean into that final sentence of that Gospel Topics essay, that we need to trust that God who created this plan for us to be happy is perfect and is going to make sure that we are. So when someone says, well, I couldn't be happy if I, you know, I know that my great grandmother, she loved her third husband far more than she loved the second one. And I just don't think she could be happy if she, I mean, we're trying to figure things out for God when we're not perfect. We don't have all the information and and frankly, we we don't even know what marriage is like in the next life. We, we we have all kinds of speculations. We all have, you know, the nice house and the white picket fence, and I'm pretty sure someone does the yard work for you. There's all kinds of stuff that we speculate, but we don't know anything. We just speculate. And so, is it possible that someone who's been sealed, you know, a woman who's been sealed to three different men will choose which one she will be with in the next life? That sounds entirely possible. One of the reasons why it's possible is because agency is an eternal principle. As I've said before, and I'll likely have to say it again on the podcast because Richard will keep forcing me to talk about this entirely uh, against what my intentions are. um, We sometimes view ceilings inappropriately. And, And what do I mean by that? I mean, we tend to view ceilings as if they are concrete. We tend to view ceilings as if agency is no longer involved in those ceilings because they're sealed and that's it. We don't do that with any other ordinance, with initiatories for the dead that we do, with endowments for the dead, with baptisms for the dead. None of us walk out of the temple saying, well, you know, Jim Johnson's a member of the church now in the next life, whether he likes it or not. We don't do that. We simply say, I have now provided the way whereby if he decides to accept these ordinances in the next life, that these ordinances can be efficacious for him on the basis of his agency. And yet for some reason, when it comes to ceilings, because it is so intimate, when we're, when we're thinking about our own marriages, then we desperately want to know exactly how it will work out. But the reality is, we, we don't know. Now, I will say this, though, because I think there's also this great fear that people end up in a marriage they don't want to be in. This is not a fear that Brigham Young had. Um, he didn't have that fear because he believed, whether it was polygamous or monogamous, people would still have to choose each other in the resurrection. So if you're thinking to yourself, I can just kneel on the ball here. I'm just trying to run out, <laughs> run the, clock. out the clock. My <laughs> wife doesn't know I've been cheating on her for the last 20 years. If I, if we can just get to where we both die, I, we're sealed and I'm golden. Well, first of all, if you've been cheating on her for the last 20 years, you haven't had your marriage sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So your sealing is not efficacious to you second of all guess who's gonna know that you were cheating on her for the last 20 years in the resurrection when all things are known
0: everyone I, I feel <laughs> everyone I, I, I feel,
1: the rooftops.
0: I feel like I feel like cheating is extreme what okay, if, let's do something what if else. I procrastinated getting getting the sprinkler system fixed I've been busy uh, you know, I've been pushing it off Saturday after Saturday, well, judging what pretending I, that my friend who's going to come and help me, he's been too busy, even though I've never right. texted him to help. Right.
1: Okay. Well, hypothetically, hypothetically, I, I think that there's some sins of omission. <laughs> there's some sins of commission. So, so, but it's not,
0: it's not an affair, but I haven't been as dutiful of a husband and I've irritated her again, not me, Someone else. someone else.
1: You keep saying I though. Well, I I'm, like uh, how you're trying to relate to our listener. Yes, base. you're yes, trying I'm, to say, you know what? Well, I'm a man, I get you. I'm a man of the people, Garrett. Yeah, if if Richard's one thing, it's <laughs> he is a man of the people. Um, but the Brigham would teach over and over again that men needed to live the life, uh, uh, live in such a way that their wives would choose them in the resurrection, meaning if. If you're in a monogamous relationship and you have a bad relationship with your wife, but you somehow kneel on the ball until it's over, she's not forced to be with you. If you think that just because you have some ceiling that was spoken in a temple somewhere that you haven't really been honoring, that she's now forced to be with you, I don't think you understand agency at all. I I know that there's no listener who's saying this, but I'm just, this is a hypothetical. And also because Richard was talking about sprinkler systems. Um, In fact, Brigham, Brigham would teach something that's recorded in Wilford Woodruff's journal. This is the 2nd of June, 1857. He's in a conversation, Wilford is, with Brigham. And Brigham says this, that there was no law in heaven or on earth that would compel a woman to stay with a man, either in time or in eternity. Well, that's a pretty categorical statement. It's actually something that we all kind of get, we just forget that we get it. And that is, agency is eternal. Agency existed before this life. Agency, and that's much more troubling to us, Agency will exist after this life. I mean, if you want to have some fun time speculating, you can ask yourself how it is that Lucifer was so glorified and and son of the morning, right? And yet, even in that exalted position, fell. I know Angie, my, my wife and I, we like to think of heaven as being like a kind of like all-inclusive sandals resort that we go, and people are just dropping off room service that never shows up on your thighs or on a bill, and and you just it's just it's just it sounds amazing, right? It's just beaches, it's 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 water sports, you know, whatever whatever you want, and and that's how we like to think about it: is that we we finish this life and we are just done. Well, there's considerable evidence in our theology, not in Christian theology, but in standard Christian, but in our theology, that you will always have agency. Always. You will always have the ability to choose. Now, the terrifying part about that is I'm barely making the right choices as it is. I don't want to have to continually make the right choices faced with temptation for the rest of all eternity. But that is apparently how it is that you become like God Um, by using your agency to always choose to do what's right. Now, I'm pretty far away from that. But as it relates to the question here, if the fear is someone is going to be in a marriage for eternity where they are utterly miserable because it wasn't someone that they really loved, what? When did we become Protestants? What, when did we become people who believed that by the happenstance of nature, God was going to punish us for eternity? I, I, I think we need to view our father as absolutely loving. And when we say, what, well, it's hard for me to think of how he could be loving if, if there was someone who was sealed to more than one person, then I think that's something that you have to put your trust in him. You have to put your trust in the Lord, Jesus Christ, for for your sins to be forgiven. You have to put your trust in the fact that God is going to somehow make up for the suffering and sorrows of this world. And you have to put your trust in God that however messy it is in the next life, that it's going to be worked out. It's going to be worked out perfectly. And everyone who is worthy of a celestial kingdom will be excluded exquisitely happy in it. Now that requires faith. it requires believing that God will do that. God has promised that God will do that and so we have to we have to then exercise that faith and just believe. I, I love uh, Bruce's question because it's such a natural normal question and like I said I don't, I don't even have an answer. Ruth's probably at this point, like, I why do why do, do I even listen to the podcast? She was probably a, saying she was saying that long before. It's a
0: great question, Ruth. Uh, of why do I listen to the yeah, podcast? Uh, keep keep listening. I yeah, appreciate
1: uh, it. Um yeah. I, I I'm sure that you're now no longer listening. But I mean, I think I think that that's an important thing to know. It, just as a, as as the baseline of the question, is it the doctrine that that she will get to choose? Well, I think the church's doctrine is we don't know what happens. And frankly, when you think about it. We spend almost all of our time, when we think about marriages, we spend almost all of our time trying to sort out the ceilings that take place in mortality, right? Those are the ones we really lose sleep over, right? Mm -hmm. So-and-so was married to so-and-so, and and then they got divorced, but their ceiling was never canceled. But what about the kids? You know know what I mean? That's what we spend most of our time on. And yet, Think about how many members of the church there are or ever have been in the world. Think about how many marriages there have been in the history of the world. We're we're, we're almost breaking 17 million members now, something like that, 17 million? And and not all of them are husbands and wives, obviously, right? Um, There's been at least, at least, 14 billion people that have lived on this earth. And we are at the height of the number of members that exist ever at 17 million. Literally, almost every single marriage that will ever be worked out or sealed will be done in the next life. So like I said, we spend a lot of time thinking about the ones that affect us especially when we're inside the circles of membership, right? Where, well, my my, my mom, my dad, my, my brother, my sister. But the reality is almost every single marriage that has ever taken place in this world is going to have to be worked out in the next life. And, and so I'm not just you know saying, well, got to have faith it'll work out in the next life. Literally almost every single... The Lord spoke to Joseph and said... That in order to enter into the highest degree of glory, the celestial kingdom, you had to be in a sealed marriage. And yet, less than one-tenth of one percent of all of the people who have ever lived on earth have ever even had that opportunity. Which means almost every single question of marriage is going to be something worked out in the next life. And that's, that's tough when we want the answers now, but it's also the reality. Now, it's a beautiful reality. Okay, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's a negative reality. That we believe that marriages can be for eternity is beautiful. No one else believes that. So we, I think we, we gather in what we have. We, we say, I am so grateful to know this. I don't know exactly how it will work, but I'm so grateful to know that it does. And just trust that our Heavenly Father— who is all good, is going to ensure that however things work out, it won't breach anyone's agency and it won't breach anyone's happiness. And that sounds like it's an impossible thing, but so is a resurrection. So is having your sins taken from you. So is walking on water so is translating gold plates. We are all about the impossible. That's the best part about being a Christian. We believe because of miracles, and therefore we just have to trust that there's going to be some in the next life. So I probably spent too much time on that. No, I think that was that was great.
0: That was just the right amount of time. Just the perfect amount of time. Um, and now is a perfect transition to John C. Bennett.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we just finished talking about you know having a testimony. <laughs> Let's talk about John C. Bennett. Um, so we we were discussing uh, in our previous episode, we were discussing the happiness letter. Um, if you don't recall, let me give you a little bit of a refresher. I think just by way of refreshing, if you didn't listen to the last episode, you probably should go listen to the last episode. And you know what? Listen to it several times. Download it. Share it. I know Renee has. My mom. Uh, well, downloaded it. She hasn't shared it. No, she, she doesn't. Makes she makes up for the lack of sharing by <laughs> downloading it literally dozens of times and then asking me how, how to get it to play. Um, this is that, that sentiment we're, we're talking about this, uh, sentiment that you've heard multiple times. It was in church manuals. You heard it in general conference that Joseph Smith taught this beautiful truth that happiness is the object and design of our existence and and will be the end thereof. Um, And and it goes on. Um, We talked about how the origin of this letter was actually in an antagonistic letter that was written by the great Nauvoo apostate John C. Bennett. And that there were multiple denials that Joseph was the author of that letter The reason why it was controversial was John C. Bennett claimed that it was a letter that Joseph Smith wrote to Nancy Rigdon to try to persuade her to practice plural marriage. Now, Rigdon would make a public denial of that, saying that that's not the case, and make a denial for his daughter, which we talked about last episode, William Smith um, would make a denial in the church's newspaper, The Wasp, um, saying that it, it, it wasn't written by Joseph Smith, that wasn't from him. But then the question becomes, well, if all these people are denying, how in the world are we quoting this in general conference? What happened? Well, this took a little bit of sleuthing to try to figure out how does this end up in our history? And when last we left you, we were talking about how Willard Richards of gun-toting fame passed away in 1854. Now, Richards had gone over this portion. So, so this um, incident, we actually know when it would have happened had it happened because John C. Bennett says that Joseph proposed marriage to Nancy Rigdon um, at a funeral. We know when that funeral was. That was in April of 1842. And when Willard Richards was preparing to draft Joseph Smith history, when he's preparing to draft it, the history of Joseph Smith is what it was called, he made notes. And when he came to those days in April that would have included Joseph Smith's um, proposal to Nancy Rigdon, he doesn't make any note of it at all, except to later in August, when after... John C. Bennett has apostatized and is is writing his letters, Richards will make a note to see the letter that Sidney Rigdon wrote denying that Joseph was the author. It says, see Sidney Rigdon's letter on account of his daughter, Nancy. It's what he wrote in his notes. Well, as they go through and they are drafting this history, now they're going to be interrupted a little bit because they're going to be driven out of Nauvoo. Right. So, one of the difficult parts about being a Latter day Saint is, you know, don't expect to see your cherry trees in full fruition, right? Because you're going to be driven out. And while Richards has gone through and made initial drafts of the history, when his uh, helper, scribe Thomas Bullock, comes to that area, he doesn't include anything. Not, uh, he doesn't include the, the denial letter of, of Sidney Rigdon, and he doesn't include Joseph Smith's so called happiness letter. And that's the way things stand for quite some time. In 1854, after Willard Richards dies, the new church historian is George A. Smith. Um, George A. Smith uh, is, you know, Prophet's cousin, much younger, um, and uh, he is, you know, we're indebted to him for a lot of our history from the Utah period. He, he does a magnificent job trying to put together the history. But as I stated at the at the end of last episode, there is a key difference between Willard Richards and George A. Smith. And it's not just the neck beard. It's, it's more than that. It's not just the number of pistols that Willard Richards is smuggling into Carthage jail. It's that Willard Richards was the private secretary of Joseph Smith, for years. Willard Richards was with Joseph on a daily basis for years, especially those last years in Nauvoo. Which means that when when Richards is writing about historical events from Joseph Smith's Nauvoo era, a lot of the times Willard Richards is actually using his own journal and his own diary and his own letters to fill in the gaps of what happened that day. George A. Smith is is present for some of those things. I'm not saying he's not in Nauvoo, but he's not the prophet's private secretary. He's not a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at that time. So while he is there and while he is important, he occupies a different position, one that is not as familiar with Joseph's dealings in Nauvoo as 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 Willard Richards was I mean frankly there's almost no one who's as familiar with with Joseph Smith in Nauvoo outside of you know William Clayton who's also one of Joseph's secretaries and the and the temple recorder I mean he he's going to be a, about as familiar but in any case so there's there's a, a there's now a necessary change in the way that this history is being, copied and recorded, you know how it is when you're taking notes in a class. I mean, there might be some of you taking notes of this podcast right now. And as you look down at your blank page that says, looks like the Lakers are going to lose again, uh, that, that, that you... Why are they having that thought? What? They're looking at their blank page thinking, hey,
0: Richard likes the Lakers. I bet they're gonna lose again. That's what you think that they're thinking?
1: Well, I think by the time they hear this, the Lakers will have been on vacation in Maui for weeks. Yes,
0: yes. To borrow a term from the TNT broadcast, they've gone fishing.
1: They've gone fishing. Yep. They they have already they've already made their 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 way out. No, you know, as we're recording this, they still have a chance.
0: The, they do not. I mean they're well, I mean Well, I mean, theoretically speaking, yes, miracles, from a
1: Christian miracle perspective, they have a chance. That's correct. Well, maybe you shouldn't call yourself King James that if you want, (laughs) if you want a little bit more Christian help, um, at, at any rate, uh, when you, when you take notes, a lot of times you don't jot every single word down because you know what you mean, right? So you might, you know, be talking to someone on the phone and you write down seven thirty. get there looking back. Okay. Well, well, that means literally nothing to anyone who grabs your notes. They're like, okay, I know that he was doing something at seven thirty, and he needed to look in the back. Right. It doesn't tell you where it doesn't tell you why it doesn't tell you how it doesn't even tell you what day when you see your own note, you're well aware what it means. Oh yeah, it meant that I needed to go to the, the church after 7.30 because that's when the reception was over and then I needed to look in back of the pulpit because that's where I'd, I'd put the scriptures that I'd found, right? Well, whatever whatever it means to you, but it means something different. In, in some ways, this is how it is for Richards who's making draft notes of how he plans to write out the history. In his draft notes, he doesn't appear to intend to write out this supposed letter of Joseph Smith at all so what happens well richard's dies and those draft notes are used by the new uh, the new people working in the in the church history office now look the, the historians office is going to uh, have to you know, make do on a pretty small budget. All of my friends working at the church history department now are thinking, what do you mean they used to have to? But you're going to have to go through on this, on this pretty small budget to get a lot of stuff accomplished. And that means that you're going to have relatively young people as scribes that are going to be brought in to help write the history. Well, when the uh, when these scribes come to this portion of the history, when they get to this portion of 1842, and they read in Richard's draft notes that they should see Sidney Rigdon's denial, I'm not sure what they think. But here's what is here's what actually happens. I had to, you know sleuth this out with the help of some handwriting experts um, at the church. Um. One of the clerks who's involved in this revision, so this would be, you know, probably around 1854, 1855, um, is is a guy by the name of Leo Hawkins. And he is going to actually write a good portion of the the text of this period of the history. The volume, the, the way they wrote these church history volumes, this is the most boring thing you've ever heard in your life, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is this
1: township level?
0: Oh no no no! These uh, townships are fascinating compared
1: to what we're talking about. Okay, this about. is the worst thing I've ever done.
0: Well, so but so but in fairness to how boring this is, uh, first of all, I, I love you. They're listening a to friend. a history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you we, knew yeah. what this was oh, yeah, when you yeah, picked, picked it, it up. up. Yeah, seriously, you're the scorpion on the back of the frog. Um, so, but also. Um, you're referencing a, a journal article that you wrote here, right? So, sure. So you you did a ridiculous deep dive in this. Most of the stuff you talk about, off the top of your head, general garbage. You know, your response. The questions are great. We we enjoy the sure, emails. Sure, sure. But I mean, like, this is something that you you spent hours and days. And I weeks spent and a months lot of time on. on. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so so this is part of the reason for the deeper dive is because you have a,
1: a very good understanding of what's happening here. Right. Well, so. Previous scribes, let me just say this, just for context. The volumes of the history that they wrote, again, that was called history of Joseph Smith. And then when it gets to Brigham Young's era, they'll call it History of Brigham Young. And then eventually, after they publish it in the church's newspaper, it'll eventually be republished by B.H. Roberts in what he will call the history of the church. That's all the same, it's the same document, just so everyone's aware. They they named these volumes that they were copying these giant ledger books that they were copying the history into. The first one was called A1, like the steak sauce. The second (laughs) one was called B1, and then C1 and on down the line. This particular portion of Joseph Smith's history is in a volume called D1. Now you're thinking, why are they calling it D1? Well, because they make a copy of all of the volumes. Again for some crazy reason they're really worried that all of their time effort and work on a single volume might be stolen or destroyed and so they they're 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 a little paranoid about it. They're making copies of it. And so they make copies of all those volumes D2, D3, you know I mean sorry, uh D2, uh C2, right? They 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 make copies of them so there's these one and two. Anyway, that that's a little, uh, uh, that's, that's as nerdy as we're going to possibly, get. I'm about to start talking about dragons. Okay. <laughs> I'm about to talk about whether or not your 16 sided dice can get you through the dungeon. If you will just bear with me a few minutes.
0: Wait, wait. So the, the tease is we're going to talk about dungeons and dragons. That's um, the tease. Only if you can hang on till the end. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. we'll
1: never get there. Um, so When they came to the, when these scribes, these young scribes in 1853, 1854, when they came to Richard's draft notes, they, they saw that he had made a note about getting a letter, you know, inserting a letter. And so they left a space in the entry, like, so there's a big blank space on the page, but then they don't actually ever copy anything in. It's just blank. It's not until later when, like I said, this other young scribe, Leo Hawkins, um, he is going to come to that blank space and he is going to insert at the end of August 27th, which is August 27th is when they're responding to John C. Bennett's you know, uh, antagonistic claims um, and and this is when the denial is made. The August 27th is the den- where Sidney Rigdon says, Joseph didn't write that, that never happened, right? Um, and Leo Hawkins will write at the end of that entry, he'll say, see addenda to page three. So then you got to go to the addenda. You go to the addenda, you go to the back, and there it is copied in, in its entirety in Leo Hawkins' handwriting is the happiness letter. Now, here's what's crazy about it. There is no explanation in that addenda page at all about what it is. It doesn't say the prophet Joseph Smith wrote. It doesn't say, here's the date of this letter. It doesn't say Joseph Smith wrote this to Nancy Rigdon, you know, have a gander. It it literally is just words on the page without any indication who wrote them, without any indication of what they are. And here's the real kicker. Because there are a couple of variations between what John C. Bennett published in his newspaper, claiming this is the letter that Joseph Smith wrote, and what he published in his book saying this is what Joseph Smith wrote, you can actually, with a pretty fair certainty, determine that the text that they are copying into this addendum of the history volume, they are actually reading out of John C. Bennett's book, History of the Saints. So so this guy goes and gets History of the Saints. Uh, Again, not the wonderful Glenn Rosson programs. This is John C. Bennett, History of the Saints. And they copy that version directly into the history. But again, without saying who wrote it, what it's about. It's just, it literally just words on a page. And that's the way it stands for quite some time. Um, It gets copied around a couple of different times, but then eventually it's going to be published that part of the history because they're publishing it serially again not the tasty morning breakfast treat but but a, a one you know a little bit at a time they're publishing it serially in the desert news they will publish that portion of the history and i am telling you it's you know go look it up go i mean is anyone going to look this up
0: no we could we could put the uh, the link in
1: So we'll put the link in the way Richard always does. (laughs) It's the December 12th, 1855 issue of the Deseret News. Okay, December 12th, 1855. And they publish this portion of History of Joseph Smith that covers this entry, this August entry. And I'm telling you, it's the weirdest thing ever. They publish it. It's just words on the page, unattributed words. So it has all the other things, you know, Joseph, because they put it in first person, you know, today I went and met with, you know, Emma wrote this letter to Thomas Ford, and then it drops down to a new paragraph and it's just words on a page. It's just happiness is the object and design of our exit. It doesn't say Joseph taught. It doesn't say Joseph wrote a letter. It's just words on the page, just completely out of nowhere and without any attribution, without any explanation and without even any date. And you might say, well, but if it was published in the church news, that, that shows that you know they must have vetted it. Well, Brigham Young actually does a pretty good job vetting a lot of uh, the church history before it's published. But we know that not all of the church history gets vetted before it's published because Brigham Young is angry on several occasions when they publish things that he hadn't had a chance to look at that contain errors in it. And in this case, he doesn't ever seem to review this publication. He's actually out of town when it's published. And then when he gets back in town, it's it's several serial publications later. So may, maybe he reviewed it, maybe he didn't. We don't really know, but that's not a very good argument to say, well, we know that Brigham Young knew that Joseph Smith wrote it because he didn't say anything otherwise when we don't even know that he saw I mean, it, it's kind of an argument from the absence of evidence. We're almost to the 16-sided dice. Don't worry. We're almost there. We're getting so close to, to the I think you're misunderstanding what payoffs are. <laughs> no, no, I understand them. I'm just a historian. Oh okay so, so. yeah, I've got no I've got no uh, 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 frame of reference to make anyone enjoy what I have to say. So here's what happens. That's published in the the church's newspaper and and kind of for a long time they're really so no one's quoting it. You don't see it anywhere. And there is a manuscript copy of that letter that is created in the late 1860s. So remember this is from the night this is from 1842. and now probably in 1868 or 69, there is finally a copy of the letter that is copied, it's copied out of the history of the church and it's copied onto a, a piece of paper as if it's the original letter. And in fact, in ages past, there were actually scholars who thought that that letter in the church archives was the original letter that was written by Joseph Smith. We now know that it, it's not because not only is the paper that it's written on from the 1860s, but the person who wrote it, their handwriting is, uh, John Henry Smith, who only worked in the uh, church historian's office for a couple of years. Right. Um, but he titles it, he titled his letter that he wrote, The Letter of the Prophet Joseph Smith to Miss Nancy Rigdon. That's what he titled it. He wrote that on the top of the paper. That's actually the first time since John C. Bennett's allegation that anyone in the church connected, it said directly, Joseph Smith said this. It was right there in that, in that manuscript, which wasn't ever published. It was just in the church archives. Well, when B. H. Roberts is trying to put everything together for the the, the history of the church that we all know, the the the, the you know the six volumes there, that nice color coded, right? Um, he is actually going to have to kind of deal with this because it's clear that you know this. He knows, B.H. Roberts knows that this comes from John C. Bennett's letter, I mean, from his letter and from his book, because he he knows his stuff. But he also sees that it's been copied into the history and he doesn't know the history of how it got copied into the history. And so B.H. Roberts provides his own explanation. This is what he writes. It is not positively known what occasioned the writing of this essay. But when it is borne in mind that at this time, the new law of marriage for the church, marriage for eternity, including plurality of wives under some circumstances, was being introduced by the prophet, it is very likely that the article was written with a view of applying the principles here expounded to the conditions created by introducing said marriage system. So there you have, even even Roberts is actually pretty hesitant about it, right? Even he's like, I'm not sure where this letter came from or why it came from, but maybe it had to do with plural marriage. Well, here's what happened in the 20th century. Because it made its way into the history of the church, it started to be readily quoted. Once those volumes were published, uh, Jay Golden Kimmel started to quote it all the time. In fact, the funny part is he actually started quoting it without any attribution. (laughs) Like he started just quoting it like it was his (laughs) idea, but he didn't curse when he said it, at least not right then. So that's, you know, everyone loves Jay Golden Kimball just because of a curse. Um, And, uh, you know, and if that's the case, if like you really only love him because you thought that he cursed on the stand, have I got some 19th century prophets to introduce (laughs) to you? Cause uh, they all, yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, with, once it started to be circulated in the history of the church, then people started to use that as a source for their talks and it started to be quoted, but without ever really understanding the history of it. So it became, especially in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was quoted all the time because it really can be a beautiful sentiment. Happiness is the object and design of our creation. I mean, that doesn't that sound beautiful? I mean, yeah. you want to believe that's true? It also became very popular with anti-Mormons. And you're thinking, "What? why is an anti-Mormon quoting this beautiful teaching of Joseph? Well, because they don't love it for what it says. They love it for the context that John C. Bennett gave it. This is Joseph Smith desperately trying to persuade Nancy Rigdon to become his plural wife. And, and frankly, even scholars both Latter day Saint scholars and relatively antagonistic to the incredibly antagonistic scholars, they uncritically accepted it as a Joseph Smith document. And, and you want to know the, the greatest irony of all ironies is some of these scholars who accept it as absolutely authoritatively Joseph Smith's say that there can be no doubt that it's definitively from Joseph because it was copied into the history of the church. And so that's how we know that it's definitively Joseph. When that same scholar, if I were to apply that to legitimately any other thing in the history of the church that didn't have something to do with plural marriage, they would say, well, you can't believe that. I mean, it's just a lie that they copied in there, right? I mean, that's the crazy, it's such, it is such a a double standard. If copied into the history of the church is a story of Joseph Smith raising people from their deathbeds in Nauvoo, well, that's just a lie that they put in there. If copied into the history of the church is a letter that has something to do with plural marriage, oh yeah, that's 100%. Yeah, yeah. Other things, everything else is a lie, but that, 100%, 100%, because it says plural marriage in it. Uh, it, it's, It's a weird thing. They actually do the same thing with plural marriage affidavits, right? If I have an affidavit that says, I saw... Joseph Smith raise a child from a dead from the dead. This skeptic says, "Well, obviously that's a lie. They're lying about that. There's no way, actually, right? If I have an affidavit that says I was a poor old wife of Joseph Smith, well, you know that's 100. Yeah, they don't they don't lie about that. I mean, like it's a it's a double standard because they're accepting the things that they want to accept because they they see them as being critical of the church. At any rate. You might notice that since more research has been done on this, that while you probably remember hearing this being quoted, and you remember seeing it in multiple manuals, and 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 you you might even still quote it now. Um, uh, in fact, it's Richard's literally Richard's favorite thing to go to church with me somewhere to have someone quote it. It's his favorite it's, it it's one of his favorite things. Oh, I love it so
0: much. Yeah, well I, as we I believe as we've mentioned in previous
1: podcasts you're a, a dream crusher and I don't like run well, up to the stand and say something. No, no, no. Unless it, it's anti-mormons taking over the testimony. That's meeting. true.
0: Uh Dirk Moss. But but I, it is you, you uh what happens is that someone asks you, but the problem is, is when they ask you, they don't actually want to know whether it's true or not. They just want you to validate the thing that they already want. Right. They and want me to the tell them that it's
1: even occurs. more true than they thought. Yeah, yeah of you this. don't even know. Yeah, like it's like ridiculous true. It's like <laughs> super true. It's like true on steroids. Um, well, so uh, you might notice that you haven't you haven't heard it, and and I think that that s- appears to be a relatively deliberate thing um uh, you know it's been more than a decade that it's been quoted in a church manual or church publication or um in general conference and and that's a deliberate thing now that's not to say that definitively it could not have been a teaching from joseph it might have been maybe it was a, it was a true teaching of joseph for a completely different reason maybe it was because you know Nancy Rigdon was being a you know She was being persuaded by the evils of John C. Bennett, and this was to try to persuade her the other direction. Maybe it was a letter that Joseph wrote to John C. Bennett to try to tell him to knock it off, that whatever God commands is right, not whatever you command is right, you know what I mean? Maybe it was written by someone else entirely. The point is we don't actually know for a certainty where it comes from. And, and I'm pretty sure Leo Hawkins, you know, the, the 19-year-old working in the church historian's office in 1854, doesn't know either. This, this is an event that had happened 12 years earlier. Leo Hawkins was seven when it happened. He didn't have any special insight into it. For all I know, he saw the note saying, go find Sidney Rigdon's letter and he thought the letter. Oh, you mean the letter that John C. Bennett said that he wrote about Nancy Rigdon? You know what I mean? On the count of his, doc- for all I know, that's what happened. I honestly don't know. And that's a tough place to be, especially when people want definitive answers. But as a scholar, I have to say, by the by the the, the criteria that we put forward for whether or not something is a Joseph Smith document. This one is highly problematic. It, it very well might be something that Joseph wrote, but it's tough to get there when in his life, he denies it. The person it's written to denies it. The other church newspaper denies it. And Willard Richards, who would have known the most about it, at least according to one source, it was written in his handwriting, the letter, Well, then why didn't he say that Joseph wrote it? Um, You know, people will say things like, well, maybe they were just trying to hide polygamy. And so that's why they didn't write about it. But that person doesn't know very much about 1854 Utah then, because we're not trying to hide it at all. In 1852, we announced it to the world. And not only are we not trying to hide it, we're sending Orson Pratt to Washington, D.C. to publish a newspaper called The Seer. Someday – should I do a podcast on the seer someday? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, is that
0: is that the – It's about
1: plural marriage though.
0: Oh, well, then doubly yes. Is this the, the Dungeons and Dragons Yeah, this, in thing? Yeah, this, yeah eventually you get to this.
1: Gonna... Orson Pratt goes to DC <laughs> and publishes a newspaper. And in this newspaper, Brigham sends him out there to help people understand that polygamy isn't just some weird, crazy thing. He, he wants them to understand – that it is a, you know, that there's rules surrounding it, that it has biblical precedent. He wants to defend the practice because the saints are being so attacked for, for the practice of plural marriage. And, and Orson Pratt, I mean, you ever want to read a defense of plural marriage, read the, the, the that issue of the seer. And he even goes so far as to describe exactly how a plural marriage sealing ceremony takes place. And I don't mean like, hey, on the day appointed, they go to the temple and they get sealed. I mean exactly, word for word, how the plural marriage sealing ceremony takes place. To which, uh, when Brigham Young finds out that he does it, he says, what are you doing publishing this temple ceremony to the world? And Orson Pratt's like, I thought that's what you wanted me to do to like show that it was... It's like I I wanted you to explain it. I didn't want you to publish the actual words of it. So that's a fun uh, historical document that sounds like I I shouldn't be talking about, but we publish it to the world. So <laughs> it's not hard to find a copy. At any rate, the 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 point I think of this entire exercise, aside from hashing out a an incredibly laborious talking point that has put everyone to sleep, is. Sources are complicated, and whenever someone acts like they aren't, it almost always means that they don't really know what that source is. It's easy to say, well, it must be true because it's in the history of the church. But until I know how it got copied into the history of the church, well, then maybe I need to kind of pump the brakes a little bit. The reality is there are all kinds of things that are somewhat inaccurate, that we're not, they're not deliberate mistakes. It's not like people are trying to deceive people, but we're all human. Mm-hmm. And all historians, including this one, make mistakes. They make, they make mistakes even when they have the best of intentions. So before you, you know, either let a single quote, un, you know, unravel your testimony or make a single quote, the, the one thing that you're going to say every time you ever bear your testimony. Just pump the brakes a little bit and say to yourself, you know, that's a great sentiment. But even if Joseph didn't say it, Joseph said a lot of other really amazing things. I don't need that quote to know that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God, the Holy Spirit of God and Joseph Smith's countless other. Incredible teachings demonstrate that. So, thank you for following us on this journey through the dungeon. Um, and uh, we will try to do something a little bit more entertaining next week. Uh, it'll be the same. Okay, we're gonna literally do the same thing next week. In fact, we'll just re- what if we repeated this? Yeah,
0: happiness part two, version one. You know what? Version two. Yeah, and a half. It, yeah, two point five. Yeah,
1: it'd be really interesting if we were to just replay an entire episode. If anyone would notice. Well, I will tell you, uh, when we did a replay of
0: premium episodes as free content, uh, people did notice and they responded. Was it
1: very positive?
0: We appreciate all
1: of our emails. (laughs) We appreciate our input. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.